This talk was given to a group of people sitting in silence during a meditation retreat. It is intended for a mind that is quiet and attentive. We invite you to enter into your own mini-retreat by sitting quietly and listening wholeheartedly. The teachings you are about to receive were freely offered. If you would like to make a donation to support their continuation, please visit us at dharmaseed.org. The magic of mindfulness is that it dissolves the glue of identification. And with that dissolution of the glue that holds all our experience together in an apparent unity, with that dissolution there is revealed the spaciousness of the mind which knows all this. So it is mindfulness that is revealing the conditions that we're entangled with, that we're free from. Our suffering comes from feeling the pinch of a limited sense of self. When we feel constrained, limited, bound, entangled in some sense of ourself that is less than the infinite. So tonight I want to speak about how we construct a sense of self through thinking and try to show how mindfulness reveals the suffering that results from that thinking and it also shows us the path to the end of that suffering when we can dissolve the glue of identification. A sense of self, as we know, is often the vehicle for different kinds of happiness. We also know that it is the vehicle for quite a lot of suffering. And in both cases, the suffering or the happiness is fleeting and fragile. But a sense of self can never be the source of our liberation. Unskillful habits of thought condition our sense of self, which, when identified with, is sure to cause suffering. And just as sounds striking the ear give rise to hearing or sights, striking the eye, give rise to seeing. When we think about our sense of self, we're bound to suffer. And the Buddha said, that which one thinks about, one identifies with. If we get entangled in our thoughts, we'll surely identify with them. You may have noticed that much of your thoughts revolve around these three questions. Who am I? What do I want? What do I believe? 
These three topics are the topics that the Buddha identified as the most, the topics of most proliferation in the mind. We just generate so many thoughts and so much, we just endlessly embellish the thoughts of who am I, what do I want, what do I believe. And interestingly enough, how we answer that question to ourselves is the source of our identity. It is, the, uh, it is what creates our uniqueness. Out of all six billion people on the face of the earth, six billion or more, there's not another one just like you. And it is that uniqueness that is you that is created by this, your, your particular or my particular proliferation of thoughts. Who am I? What do I want? What do I believe? The significance or the value of Vipassana practice is that, and you'll remember that Vipassana really means to see clearly impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and the impersonal nature of all experience. It is this insight into impermanence which undermines solidifying a sense of self around the question, who am I? It is the insight into dukkha that undermines solidification around any sense of self and what I want. And it's the insight into anatta or the impersonal characteristic of phenomena that undermines solidification around wrong views. And so it is the three insights into impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, impersonality that directly arrests and undermines our tendency to create a sense of self and solidify around it by grasping it. This question, who am I, arises in the mind with a certain mental state. When there is a certain mental state called mana in the mind, we tend to proliferate thoughts about who I am, who am I. Mana is usually translated as pride, conceit, the conceit of I am. And it essentially involves taking delight or finding satisfaction in some thought about ourselves. or some quality that we experience that we then identify with as me. When we merge a sense of I with some quality, like our appearance or our knowledge, or some possession, such as our power, wealth, or some action, 
some accomplishment, some achievement, or when we identify and merge a sense of self with our gender, our race, our religion, our family, the mind is influenced, is under the influence of mana. So we should look at this habit of mind. Because as you know, and as you no doubt have seen, there's a tremendous amount of suffering from our identification with our qualities, our attributes, who we think we are. The activity of mana, or conceit, is rooted in attachment. And it is the attachment to that sense of self. It is always accompanied by delusion. It is the delusion of ascribing personal significance to impersonal events. And it is fueled by restlessness because the identity that we create out of some attachment to condition, quality, achievement, that identity can only be maintained by repeatedly thinking about it and reaffirming it through thought. Our sense of ourself is only maintained because we repetitively ruminate over and over and over again on that which we identify with. When we can see that, Rumination, that repetitive, reflective, reaffirming, and we can arrest it, the sense of self begins to dissolve. We begin to see how porous it really is. And with that porosity of self, the spaciousness of the mind becomes apparent. So let's look at this capacity of mind to get identified with some fleeting momentary perception. It's said that there are three ways, or the Buddha identified three ways that mana is apparent or revealed in the mind. And the first is what the Buddha called superiority mana. We mostly notice it in our practice here with comparing mind. And if you've been paying attention, you know that when your mind works overtime comparing and judging, there's a tremendous amount of suffering. We should be clear, though, that the ability to look at options in our life, to evaluate and weigh carefully different possibilities, different partners, different decisions, we need to know how to do that. We need to know how to evaluate, judge, determine, and decide 
what will be most supportive of our direction in life. So it's not the process of evaluating that is the problem. It is when this comparing works over time in ways that we're not conscious of or don't really care about. And when they operate unconsciously, create a sense of self that then suffers. So when we get attached to the comparison in our mind, we identify with it when we claim it as me, as mine, who I am. Or we take a general impression and solidify a sense of self. Or we take a momentary perception and eternalize it. When you feel impatient, well, I should say, when I feel impatient, (laughs) which is my default setting, uh, there used to come into my mind not only that I was impatient in this moment, but that I was an impatient person. And let's face it, any of us can deal with a moment of being impatient, but a lifetime of being impatient, none of us can deal with. And the same goes with you know, being, being angry or feeling vulnerable. A lifetime of feeling vulnerable, nobody can bear that. But a moment of feeling vulnerable, we can deal with that. But quite unconsciously, the mind has a habit of eternalizing a momentary perception and making something more solid, more enduring, and more personal than it really is. The only way we can see that is to pay very close attention and see that that momentary perception that conditions that sense of yourself is just a fleeting, momentary, impermanent experience. And that sense of yourself isn't sustained without repeatedly reflecting on what you just noticed. Superiority mana occurs when we compare ourselves to someone else and we find ourselves ahead, so to speak, or with more of some desirable quality. And it can be anything, just appearance or knowledge or some capacity, even being taller than someone. In our culture, there's a very well-presented hierarchy of what's best. Young, energetic, smooth, you know, and you can just look in the pages of any magazine and you'll see what our cultural conditioning is. And we've taken in that conditioning. And our mind 
operates from that conditioning. And it only opposes that conditioning with a lot of awareness. When we take delight in our sense of having more than or being more than another, we're caught. We're caught in a sense of self. We've solidified around a sense of self and we'll surely suffer because it doesn't last. And when we see that this perception is impermanent, this condition is impermanent, that sense of self has to be let go of. And when we lose our sense of self, there's an experience of loss. And loss has to be grieved. And grieving is suffering. Even here on retreat. How do you know when you look around the hall, as you probably have done, or as you've walked through the dining room, how do you know a good yogi from a less than diligent yogi? How straight they sit, how long they sit, how slow they walk, how early they get up, how late they stay up, how little they eat. Somehow, our mind is busy, 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 (laughs) just kind of looking around, checking it out. And if you haven't noticed it, just sit in the dining room and watch people go through the lunch line. Just watch. You don't even have to be thinking. Your mind will automatically decide who is mindful, who isn't. Who's the good yogi, who's not. What is it that's actually being measured there, really? Is how slow someone walks really a characteristic of wisdom? And yet, somehow the belief comes into our mind. And so when we find ourselves just kind of hurrying through, taking more than we want on the plate and eating quickly without even noticing it, well, we turn that reflection on ourselves and say, oops, really? Are you so different eating fast than eating slow or walking fast or walking slow? And yet the mind evaluates, it judges, it it perceives these insignificant impersonal differences and makes something of it. And with that sense of self comes suffering. We should distinguish a healthy self-esteem from an unwise sense of self. A healthy self-esteem recognizes one's inherent potential. But an a limited self-identity fixates on one's current kind of capacity. A healthy self-esteem trusts and is confident, where a limited self-identity is insecure and fearful. Healthy self-esteem acknowledges current limitations. A fixed self-identity is attached to, entangled in, fears 
one's limitations. A healthy self-esteem accepts impermanence of all conditions. A limited sense of self tries to avoid change or denies it. Superiority mana can take any capacity, any quality of our experience, and get identified with it. We can identify with our religion of choice. We can identify with our race. We can identify with our gender. As if we had a lot of choice in this. And somehow we can feel enhanced. That somehow, because I'm a that is something to be identified with. When we're unaware of our cultural conditioning, our genetic conditioning, our political conditioning, our economic conditioning, our karmic conditioning, when we're unaware of that, we will act out our preferences blindly, causing ourselves and others an immense amount of suffering. Mindfulness begins to reveal the conditioning so that rather than acting out our identity and our identifications blindly, we can begin to apply some understanding and wisdom to the evaluating, judging, comparing capacity of the mind. Not only is there superiority mana, there's inferiority mana. And this is when we become identified with some quality in ourself that is generally seen to be inferior, like impatience or anger or whatever else. You feel maybe ashamed, limited, humbled by. And when we have less of a desirable quality or more of an undesirable quality, where we feel devalued or unfortunate or victimized, we can form an identity around that just as solidly as we can around something that we're proud of. It is the sense of self that we're grasping. It's the grasping and the sense of self that's the cause of the suffering. One way that you may see this, and is quite common in spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines, is when we, consciously or unconsciously, have an image in our mind of the goal what it would be like to be a perfect yogi, to be mindful all the time, or to be enlightened, to be free. And when we have that image in our mind, we cannot help but compare our own very limited realization unfavorably. And so in this idealization of spiritual practice, we always end up inferior. 
And we can notice it when we find ourselves striving for perfection. Somehow being, having some idea that I just got to work harder, I just got to be more, I got to be harder on myself in order to become perfect. Well, let me tell you a story about perfection. A friend of mine is a, an artistic painter in England, and he's a really good, really good painter. And he was a devotee of Ajahn Chah, one of the Thai forest monks. And when Ajahn Chah was going to come to England for the first time, he painted a life-size picture of Ajahn Chah sitting in the, sitting in the jungle of Thailand. And it's life-size, big picture. And it was put in the entryway of the monastery where he would be staying and visiting. So my friend positioned himself just inside the door so that he could see Ajahn Chah's response when he saw this picture of himself sitting in the jungle. And so Ajahn Chah comes through the door, looks at this life-size, very realistic painting of himself sitting in the jungle, and he says, perfectionists really suffer. (laughs) Which is not what my friend expected to hear. But it's true. If you look at your own mind and you see how miserably you fail to be perfect, that's suffering. But that is the activity of inferiority mana. It's just when that quality is present in the mind, that's how you'll see yourself. And that sense of self suffers. It doesn't matter what the judgment is, whether it's I'm great or I'm terrible. It's seeing the activity of judging and the identification with it that frees us. If you get identified with being superior, suffering. If you get identified with being inferior, suffering. If you challenge the identification with inferior, suffering. If you don't want to be caught in that superior image, suffering. The only way to be free of suffering is to see it. Not buy into it and not resist it. If you buy in, you're caught. If you resist, you're caught. It's seeing clearly the activity of mind, the comparing, the evaluating, the grasping, the sense of yourself that's reflected there. You may have noticed that the Buddha was very thorough. Not only is there superiority mana and inferiority mana, there's equality mana. So you've really seen through. You're not superior, you're not inferior, you're equal to. Ah, the Buddha said, sorry, that's another form of suffering. Well, what does he mean? You know, think about it. There are legitimate differences between people. When we're unable to recognize the authentic differences or when we're unwilling to acknowledge superior qualities or when we minimize inferior qualities, 
we're insisting on some sort of false equality. That sense of yourself that is equal to is what we grasp. Or when grasped is the cause of suffering. That's not to say that there aren't areas of life where all beings are or should be equal. Political opportunities, economic opportunities, educational opportunities. Yes, to have those opportunities equally available to all is worthy. And whatever any of us can do to encourage that or to manifest that addresses a lot of suffering. But you know what? Some beings are smarter. It's true. Can we acknowledge that? Some are wiser. Can we acknowledge that? Not that we have to fixate on it or minimize ourselves or elevate ourselves, but just to recognize legitimate differences. Years ago, many years ago, I was in a I was in the dissolution stage of a long relationship. And I didn't want it to end, but it was heading heading in that direction. And I used to say to the slowly dissolving partner, <laughs> remember the way it used to be? That's the way it still is. And I was hanging on to thinking that this relationship is still the equal in value to me, to her, as it was five, six, seven years before. And it wasn't. It was gone. It was over. But I wasn't able to see that. I wasn't able to let go. I wasn't able to see the impermanence or accept the impermanence of that relationship. Most of us are not so confused as to be totally entangled in only superiority mana or inferiority mana or equality mana. We happen to have all three. When I was in the monkhood, there's, it was a really interesting matrix of conditions. In the monkhood, all monks are equal. We're all practicing the same uh, precepts. We're all committed to the same uh, lifestyle. We all have the same rules that we have to follow. But within that, those who have been monks longer or are senior are always paid respect to by those who are junior. So if someone's been a monk for 10 days, Everyone who's been a monk less than them has to pay respect to them. Or if you've been a monk for, if you've been a monk or if I've been a monk for 30 years, I have to pay respect to anyone who's been a monk more than that. And so there's an equality, but there's also a recognition of legitimate difference. Within the tradition, there is a recognition of those who have greater realization. And even though one with greater realization may be junior to one who has 
there is a way of recognizing and paying respect to those of greater realization. And within the monastic order, as a junior monk, the first five years, you have to be under the guidance of a more senior teacher, your preceptor usually. For the second five years, between five and ten years, you don't have to be under your preceptor. You can live on your own, but you can't be a teacher to or responsible for anyone else. And it's only after ten years are you then considered adequately trained and knowledgeable and having experienced enough to actually take responsibility for training another monk. Even though monks are all equal, even though there is a hierarchy in age or length of time in the monastery, there still is this legitimate need for recognition and valuing of, within the community, one's proper place. To insist on equality in such a situation is to be caught in equality mana and the suffering that results from that. I found myself in every one, caught in the superiority mana, wanting to go, wanting to be in my proper place ahead of others in the line, caught in my inferiority mana, not feeling can't live on my own yet until after five years. And at other times, insisting on, I want to be an equal to, even though there were legitimate differences. And you can see it in your mind, if you pay attention, how this, these habits of mind, they come up over and over and over again. When we see them, and we see how fleeting this perception is, we don't suffer. If we don't see it, or if it's operating unconsciously, and we get caught there, we're surely going to suffer. I was mentioning to Guy the other night how important it is to distinguish between relative consensual reality and the absolute reality of insightful experience. And so too with this topic. When we see the comparing activity of the mind, the evaluating activity of the mind, when we look around our families, our communities, our culture, the world, we can see a tremendous amount of inequality we can see a tremendous amount of injustice. We can see a tremendous amount of suffering due to individuals and whole tribes, whole cultures being solidly identified with their views and opinions. In the world of social engagement, political engagement, economic opportunity, and education, wisdom would have us address these inequalities. Do what we can to minimize the suffering from attachment to identification. 
But we should be careful to understand that it is the lack of understanding, really, that is the problem. It's not the condition. It's not the quality. It's our identification with it, or our attachment to it, or our views and opinions about it. And so to address true inequality and the suffering of inequality, or discrimination, or alienation, or isolation, or whatever, we need to address attachment. Attachment to views and opinions, because that's the source of the suffering. So how do we work with this very strong habit of mind? In practice, one initial way is to reflect on the changeability of conditions. Someone mentioned earlier in the retreat the eight vicissitudes of life or the eight worldly dharmas, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. Each one of us has experienced them all. And to get to get attached to a sense of yourself, either one of great gain or great loss, great praise, great blame, great fame, a great disrepute, is sure to be a source of suffering and is sure to be temporary. And if you just reflect on that, how quickly one's fortunes can change due to external conditions, due to internal conditions, due to many conditions that are beyond our control. I remember watching the Olympics, not it was a few years ago now, and I think it was a weightlifting, you know, and we're in the final, the final few lifts of weightlifting for the gold medal, and one weightlifter, you know, did his thing that was sure to win him the gold medal. And after he did his lift, he was just exuberant and was just so proud and so full of himself. <laughs> and his competitor who had no chance of, of beating him put more weight on his thing and lifted it to take the gold medal. And the person, the first person, his, his exuberance and his identification with being the gold medal winner about 10 seconds long and then it was shattered. And whatever sense of ourself gets identified with what we have, what we do, what we accomplish, is equally as fragile. And just to reflect on that, that whatever it is we're attached to, whatever it is we're identified with, is sure to change. can help to minimize or undermine our attachment to all senses of self. Another way in, with mindfulness is to look at what is actually being 
evaluated? What is actually being identified as worthy of feeling inflated or feeling deflated? And as I mentioned, you know, how long you can sit, how slow you can walk, how little you can eat. Really? Is that really the measure of wisdom? Is accumulation of wealth really a measure of happiness? Is the accumulation of degrees really a measure of knowledge or wisdom? Is accumulation of votes indicative of capacity to lead? <laughs> so I'll throw that in. <laughs> I think it was Andy Warhol said, you know, everyone is due their 15 minutes of fame. And that's it. The stage moves on. You know, uh, the winds of change are blowing. You know, who can not get caught? Who cannot hang on to some temporary appearance in the changing wind? Another way of especially in, in practice, a way of undermining the suffering of, of mana, is to, is to really recognize what your spiritual goal is. What it is that you think you're doing with this practice. Where is it you want to go? Who is it you want to become? What is it you want to get? Because unconsciously, how you answer those questions, and we all do, sets up the foundation for a tremendous amount of struggle and comparing and evaluating and ultimately suffering. And so should we, should, we should turn around and look at what's our aspiration here. And if it is something that is an ideal, is to recognize that that aspiration may not need to be a goal so much as a direction. That in any moment we can turn to the proper direction and move forward and be quite satisfied with that rather than striving and struggling and no. and un- unreaching some far-off goal. We might also reflect on the fact of impermanence and ultimately that being a human being, we are subject to aging, disease, and death. And when we reflect on that, to not, not just to be morbid and kind of depressed and fearful, but to recognize that in that process of aging and ultimate, ultimately dying, we will have to let go of everything. I remember when my mother was, was aging and, and going through um, her process of, of, of dying. It was a long process when you really look at when she started letting go. When my father died, she was no longer a wife. When she retired, she was no longer an employee. When the grandkids were grown up, she was no longer the 
babysitter. <laughs> and when, and as time went on, it's just, you know, her, you know, at some point she couldn't drive a car anymore, so she was not so mobile. At some point the doctor said, you know, the condition you have is terminal. You know, her future was, she had to let go of all her futures. And eventually let go and letting go of her autonomy and her capacity to take care of herself. We'll all take that journey. What is it that we're holding on to now? What sense of ourself that we're holding on to now are we ultimately going to have to let go of? And can we let go of it now and save ourselves the suffering? The Buddha said to his son, Rahula, develop the perception of impermanence, for when you do, the conceit of I am will be abandoned. Develop the perception of impermanence. See how fleeting each moment really is. And if we see the impermanence of each moment, and do not reflectively reconstruct it over and over and over again. Whatever sense of yourself was seen as impermanent remains impermanent. But if we don't see impermanence, that sense of self that is conditioned by impersonal events will appear to be solid, something you've got to deal with. Insight into impermanence is essential for freeing the mind from suffering. And initially, with our practice, we begin to see just how impermanent all our experience really is. Through thinking, we can understand that, you know, we're born, we grow up, we grow old, we die. And that can, that can be pretty sobering in itself. But when we look closely at our moment-to-moment experience, what we see is the body is changing moment by moment. The mind is changing moment by moment. Our environment is changing moment by moment. There's nothing that we have experienced before that will ever come the same way again. Every moment is new. Similar, but new. And when we see that clearly, deeply, it helps us to let go. But more than seeing the impermanence of each moment's experience, there's a deeper level of insight that occurs when we see that Not only is the object of our attention impermanent moment by moment, but the knowing is impermanent moment by moment. Now, just as we know that objects come and go, and it's easy to see them as being impermanent, when the 
insight of our mind, when the understanding of our mind reveals that the knowing, which we are so identified with, is also impermanent, who is it in here that is so solid? that is so me, that is so fixed. It's a radical understanding of the impermanence of self, the fleeting nature of anything that could be identified as a self. This radical insight into impermanence, called sunyata, shunyata. The Buddha said of it, though with a faithful heart one takes refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, or with a faithful heart one observes sila, the rules of morality, or one develops a mind or heart full of metta, by far more meritorious it is if one cultivates the perception of impermanence, even if only for a moment, as valuable as it is to live a life of refuge in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, to live a morally pure life, as valuable as that is, to develop a loving heart, as valuable as that is, by far more meritorious it is if one cultivates the perception of impermanence, even for a split second. And why is that? Because in that clear perception of impermanence, we see through the illusion of self. And it is seeing through this illusion of this fixed entity within the source of suffering, that frees us from that suffering. It is insight into impermanence that dissolves the glue of self-identification. When the understanding of impermanence, of conditions, of objects, of observing, is clear and continuous, the mind does not reach for anything. There is the knowledge that anything that appears is impermanent. It's not there more than a split second. When the mind sees that deeply, penetratingly, over and over and over again, it lets go in such a dramatic way of the known that it can fall into the unconditioned. And the unconditioned is a reality. Nibbana is a reality. 
that is accessed through insight into impermanence. And so this insight into impermanence is to be developed, not only to disentangle ourselves from the suffering of I, me, and mine, but to know that reality beyond all conditions. It is possible. It is available. It can be realized. And the unconditioned is beyond suffering. So let's sit for a moment. Let the words quiet down. Anicca vata sankara upadavaya dhamino upakitua nirujanti desam upasamo sukho. All conditioned things are rising and passing away. Realizing this deeply brings the greatest happiness, which is peace. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. This talk was given by Stephen Armstrong at Insight Meditation Society on November 28, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.